are listening to the Antler and Featherco podcast. All right. Hey guys, what's going on? Welcome back to the Antler and Featherco podcast, the podcast for new and adult onset hunters. New experience, guys, you can stick around too. We got plenty of great information today that you're going to also find valuable. My name's Vince, and today we're going to take a deep dive into the benefits of having having a solid mapping app and deer prediction app. Uh, I think most of us have had subscriptions to a number of different apps out there, um, but I just want to know, am I using it to the full potential? So my hope is by the end of the show, we're going to have a better idea of how we can best utilize these apps uh, to make us better in the whitetail woods. Nothing's going to replace woodsmanship, but these definitely uh, don't hurt to have in your pocket. So as I said, there's tons of different options. I won't go through all of them. Uh, You guys know who they are, but I have personally settled on Spartan Forge. Um, I have, and if you ask my wife, she can tell you, I have bought subscriptions to everyone out there. And every time I use them, I always end up going back Spartan Forge. So last year in the deer season and turkey season, I decided to make that my number one app. And that's what I went with. Um, make sure you guys stick around to the end of the podcast, because after we get through all of this information, I know you're going to want to get Spartan Forge, and we are going to have a special 20% off um, code for you, so you can pick Spartan Forge up for yourself right before deer season. Um, so, like I said, Spartan Forge is what I've settled on, and it's kind of what we're going to talk about most here, and uh, I figured who better to bring on the show to talk about Spartan Forge than the creator of Spartan Forge. So, Bill Thompson. How we doing? Good, Vince. How are you? I'm doing good, man. Um, I appreciate you coming on here. Uh, I feel like I feel like mapping apps, especially for myself as a newer hunter and for other newer hunters, I feel like they're great to have. And most of them are pretty intuitive in terms of just how to look at the map and kind of see what uh, an aerial view of where you're at is. Um, but I know that there's a lot more that you can pull off of a mapping app for information. So I'm hoping that we can kind of dig into that and uh, kind of understand, especially Spartan Forge, how to understand it better because your map side of it has tons and tons of layers that they're just, all of them are super awesome. And I hope to get into like the benefits of all the different layers you offer, but then the Intel side of the app as well is super interesting. And um, so if you guys see me looking down at my phone going through, it's because I'm kind of going through the app just so we make sure we cover all the all the information so you can best understand it and put it to put it to use. So Bill, like I told you, we're going to say a quick prayer and then we'll jump right in. So, all right, Lord, uh, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for what he did on the cross in our place. Um, He paid the debt that we would never be able to pay on our own. And um, I thank you for Bill. I thank you for his willingness to come on here. Um, And I just ask that you would be over this conversation and that you'd be with us. And through this podcast and through this conversation, um, I hope that you can work through me to bring more people into your kingdom, as well as get more people into your creation. Uh, What you've created is absolutely beautiful, absolutely awesome. And it would be great just for as many people as as can get out into the woods to, to appreciate it. Uh, I just hope that you can reach them through this podcast. Uh, I just want to glorify you through everything I do. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. 
pretty sure everybody's heard of Spartan Forge. Um, if you're in the hunting world and you have mapping apps, which I think almost everybody does, you know what Spartan Forge is, but you might not know who Bill is. So Bill, for everyone who doesn't quite know you, kind of give us a background on just yourself. Uh, how long have you been hunting? And as well as like your, what you did in the military and thank you for your service. Um, what you did in the military that kind of led to the creation of Spartan Forge. Yeah, thanks for your patriotism. So um, my name is Bill Thompson. Uh, I was a uh, military officer and an enlisted guy. I was in the military for about almost 21 years. And um, the, the majority of the time I was an intelligence officer or an intelligence enlisted guy. And my job was basically to help inform uh, battle, you know, I would say commanders, combatant commanders on basically, you know, patterns of bad guys and, and where they were most susceptible and, and learning the patterns surrounding uh, you know, at that time it was terrorists. Now it's kind of like nation state actors, but at the time it was more the global war on terrorism, uh, at least up until I retired. And um, basically my job was answering the mail on some of the, there's lots of ints, what we call int, I-N-T in the military. You know, there's geoint, there's humant, there's sigint, there's mazint, there's fizzent, there's humant, there's all of these different types and, and uh, I focused on signals intelligence, cyber intelligence, and human intelligence. And my, my, my job while I was in there was to kind of paint the picture from that perspective. For commanders, I did that both in the conventional army and I guess what you could call the unconventional military or the special operations community. Um, and yeah, so I've also been a hunter for about, I'm starting to lose my, my I think I believe I first started bow hunting. I've, I've kind of been hunting all of my life, but bow hunting and seriously hunting for 15 or 16 years. And, um, you know, there's a lot of overlap in, in, in hunting and in being a service person in that, especially in the jobs that I was in, you're trying to solve targeting problems. Mm -hmm. and targeting problems involves having an understanding of the variables that feed into an equation that's going to dictate you know, movement and um, exploitation of targets. So basically through this application through Spartan Forge and basically what I did in the military as well was to understand all the variables involved in constructing a targeting cycle and then e executing that targeting cycle. So what are the variables that influence the target, in this case, animal, and then how do I account for those variables and allow them to inform how I'm hunting? So that's kind of the genesis of Spartan Forge. And so, yeah, that's what I, I've been working on Spartan Forge now in, in one form or another for about seven years. I didn't get really serious into it. I would say I formed the LLC for Spartan Forge in 2017, and I have been working full-time on it since 2019 or so and um and just you know launched the app last year it was late there was a variety of things that went into it but essentially um i didn't get it released until i think it was november 3rd or november 5th obviously very late mm -hmm. for, we still had a really good season and we learned a lot and it was kind of a good time to launch because we you know we we got obviously got thousands of users and we were able to stress test the system and make sure that we'd done the architecture correctly and uh, kind of tee everything up for this year. So 
Awesome. Uh, this will be the first uh, the first go with uh, a full team and a full marketing budget and a capable application that's ready for prime time. That's got to be that's got to be a ton of background work to get that going. But from the user side, do keep doing what you're doing because it's it's awesome. I loved it. Like I said, especially turkey season this year. Um, I killed a bird opening day, and I used. I use your app to kind of e-scout um, and then obviously all throughout the woods because it's hard to see where I was at, you know, and like I said, being new still, um, just what I lack in like woodsmanship and understanding where the, th- you know, I just don't know my public land that well yet. So I was in Spartan, for, I mean, I was burning the battery on my phone like crazy, <laughs> but awesome. So was it, was there anything about um, any of the other apps out there? Was there anything you found lacking with them that made you want to create Spartan Forge? Or was it, you just had this idea um, specifically on the Intel side of it that you wanted to put out there? I thought there was a ton lacking from the other applications. Um, Myself going out into the field before I would hunt, I didn't have a lot of time being a military officer. My time was precious. Mm-hmm. And so when I had downtime at work or if I was in the team room and, and had a few moments on a computer, I would be cyber scouting and, and cyber scouting is important. Like you said, I think you had said earlier, maybe it was when we were off camera, but you know, there's no replacing boots on the ground scouting. That's absolutely true. Right. Spartan Forge won't do that. And I don't pretend to say that Spartan Forge will do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it will do is it will help you kind of X spaces off the map and say to yourself, this is not a place I'm going to scout. This is a place I'm going to scout. And then again, kind of do that variable analysis, um, that multivariate analysis that allows you to make an informed decision. That's what Spartan Forge can do. So as I said, I was using seven or eight different programs, websites, different weather repositories, even different weather repositories for different parts of the U.S. And so what I saw was there was lots of different places that I had to go to kind of paint my strategic picture of the whitetail woods. And what, what I ended up doing was kind of isolating or distilling out of all of these other sources of information, the things that I use from them. So, you know, I might get, be getting this from, I would be getting wind data from pilot mapping um, programs. I would be getting uh, barometric pressure from things like AccuWeather. I would be getting uh, doe to buck ratios from things like state game websites. I would be getting hunter numbers from state game websites. I'd be getting the mapping from Google Maps, from um, you know other competitor apps now for me like Onyx or HuntSend or HuntWise or all of these things. And then I'd be getting the prediction part. The first thing I kind of took issue with was the prediction part because I had access at that time to military bases that had collared deer on them. And I could actually sit and look and see if these prediction apps were correct. And they were never correct. I think I had measured one. I had measured one of the more popular ones in like 2017 or 2018, and I found it to be correct 17 or 16 percent of the time, or something like that. And the advertising really? it was 99 percent correct. So I knew as a data guy that these things were, you know, jokes. And I thought to myself, I, I, I could build my own network that could do this type of prediction. And it's probably a whole another podcast on the first kind of couple of networks that I built. But eventually I got to using the, the, the caller GPS data to build a neural network. And as you said before, this neural network has no bias. Um, 
The only thing it does is it looks at pattern analysis based on weather and other inputs that we put into it. And then it drives the most likely pattern for movement and pattern and then does a prediction on future results. And, and it's very accurate. And we found it and, and we got it up to, I think, 57 or 58% accuracy a couple of years ago, which is when I knew I wanted to take it in a prime time. Mm -hmm. And we've, we've been collecting thousands of years of deer data. Now we're up near like 63, between 63 and 67, depending on where you are in the U.S. is the accuracy, which is about two thirds of the time. It's, it's bucketing the, the prediction correctly. And so, it, you know, and then as, as you asked, you know, I've gotten a long ways from your question, but your question was, what was lacking? Well, what was lacking for me was the historical context about whitetails in an area, the buck to doe ratios, the whitetail populations, the acres of public land that were available, um, the proximity of public land that was available, um, the actual wind data visual, visually represented on the ground from the correct weather repository. One of the problems that occurs is um, weather gets, some weather apps are very good at some parts of the U.S. and not so good at other parts of the U.S. And it has to do with the density of, of weather reporting, um, uh, weather reporting uh, hardware that they have on the ground. And so they're more dense in one area than they are in another, or they're getting it from a certain airport and another one's getting it from an airport near there, or they're getting it from a, a weather um, vein that they put out themselves. So it was a lot of inconsistency um, on top of that, not understanding for, you know, as you talked about being a new hunter, not, you know, what does a fern plant look like in Pennsylvania versus what does it look like in Minnesota or what does, what, you know, are deer even eating those in certain parts of the country? Uh, and, and isolating and breaking down all of those things took a tremendous amount of time, but, you know, guys on our pro staff like Andy May or Garrett Prawl, who I think you're talking to pretty soon, that's all information that you need before you can go into the whitetail woods, especially if you're traveling and you're going to a place you've never been before. You really need to know all of that stuff. But then also, you know, it was very difficult to get aggregated weather data. So in other words, if I'm scouting in July for a hunt in November, I want to know what the primary winds are in certain spots of the country. That wasn't something I was getting from any of the apps. Um, I wanted to look at historical changes in the, the topography and the vegetative cover on the ground in areas because that will derive and change deer movement as it goes forward, which is evidence in the GPS data. All of these things are not in the other apps that are out there. And even though it might not be obvious on its face, everything I just talked about is available inside of Spartan Forge. You just kind of have to go digging around for it because the, what I wanted to do with the application was create an application that was simple enough if someone just wanted to drop points, they could just drop points. So if they just wanted to go out and scout and drop points, they could do that. But if they really wanted to get into the nitty gritty and have a firm understanding of what's going on in a particular area, that they could do that deep dive and it was all centralized inside of the application. So yeah, I found a lot lacking inside of these other applications. And really it comes down to, um, they're just, they haven't been challenged or pushed. So, you know, there's been two or three, you know, main, you know, hunting apps that are out there and everybody knows them ad nauseum. They really haven't changed in four or five years. Right. And the only change that has occurred has occurred because the mapping systems that they use have updated. So as a point of contact, Mapbox now offers 3D mapping and things like terrain emphasis. That's not something any of these hunting apps that are offering that have built. Mapbox built those things, and then these mapping companies just adopt it and then put it in their application, then they market it, and that's BS. So they're moving at the speed of what other companies are of the other companies that they're paying to do these things and hunters really deserve better so what i've been trying to do with spartan forge is 
define new technical areas of opportunity and then get them get after them as voraciously as possible. Um, and and I think that's evidenced out when you look at the velocity of what we've done with Spartan Forge in the last nine months. Um, we're already as good as the other apps that have been out there for ten or twelve years. Um, for sure. So give me two or three more years and the delta between what I can offer a hunter and what these other apps are going to be offering hunters is going to be so vast it'll be incomprehensible. And I'm not trying to be braggadocious or puff my chest here. All I'm trying to say is I'm driven to offer the hunter as much as possible and that will be evidenced out by what I'm actually doing with the application. If you examine our builds and our changes and what we're adding to the application, what was in there seven months ago and what's in there now is so far apart that it's not even like calling it the same app as what it was before. Right. But yes. So, I found it. I found the other apps to be short, short. Yeah. Just, well, and that was, that was one thing that attracted me to uh, Spartan Forge in the beginning is um, specifically, and, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not crapping on Onyx or any of the, these other guys, but that's all they were. They were waypoint, uh, waypoint maps. Um sure. Now they've they've come out with things that, I mean maybe it's because I'm still I'm still newer. So when they come out with like, what kind of trees are out here? You can make a layer for that. What is this? What is that? Um, a lot of the information that's in there that you're able to turn on in a layer is kind of like, you know, if you're a hunter, you're gonna be out there. And like I already know this stuff. You know, it's it wasn't offering anything to me. Um, and at least how I knew how to use the app. It wasn't offering anything that was actually beneficial to my hunting other than a map. So when I saw Spartan Forge and, and specifically the, the, just all the detail that goes into the Intel side of it, um, and, and then finding out that it's not, the Intel side's not Bill Thompson's opinion. It's not, hey, you know, I've hunted for all these years and here's what I've seen. So here's what I think deer are gonna do. Yours is like we said, it's it's straight data and it's it's from the area you're hunting. So, yeah. you know, if if a guy in Florida is like, here's what I'm seeing, here's my prediction, well, that doesn't do anything for me in Iowa. You know, right. hell, your your rut's two months before mine. What do you what is this doing for me? But um so for you guys, if you don't have Spartan Forge, it obviously offers all of the basic stuff that you would want in a mapping app. Um, it's it's going to have your property lines, your landowners, um, what crops are available. It's got a satellite view. It's got agricultural view. It's got all this, all the all the things that you would expect out of the mapping app. Um, one thing different about yours, and I want to kind of spend a little time on this area, just because, honestly, selfishly, I want to know how to utilize this part better when I go in. Um, you offer this one layer, it's the Lambda layer, uh, the Lambda map. What, just because I don't understand, what is the UAV? What is, so UAV, what is... So UAV is a term for the military for unmanned aerial vehicle. Um, and essentially what it is, is UAVs, uh, where we actually get our imagery from is airplanes that are flying, but UAVs for the military provide really crisp and clean, up-to-date imagery. So we coined the term UAV and then we put it in the map mapping app and essentially that uav layer is the highest resolution imagery available on the market it's five to 15 centimeter resolution which basically means you can throw a five centimeter object on the ground and you should be able to see it with this as long as it's colored differently than what's around it you're going to be able to see it on the spartan right um, we only have 40 or so percent coverage of the u.s but we're expanding that country as we are expanding around the country as our user base grows 
it's very expensive imagery, but it's also updated every six months. So just like a UAV, you're seeing the imagery being updated in real time all of the time. It's the crispest and the cleanest imagery that you can find. And uh, so that UAV layer is an available option inside of Lambda. Uh, the point of the Lambda map, or if you'd like me to kind of walk you through uh, how I use the mapping or how what's a good recommended way of using the mapping, I can do that if you'd like. Yeah, me. yeah, absolutely. So essentially, when you open the application, you'll get presented with what's called SAT-1. And SAT just means satellite. And satellite one is just kind of our middle of the road imagery. It's fine in some areas. It's not so great in some areas. It's basically our medium grade all around imagery. And, and what we get from satellite one is if you're just interested in just mapping and dropping pins, it's going to load that one every time. You can map and drop pins. But then if you really want to start getting into looking at different times of the year or looking at different quality of imagery for different areas, we've bought maps from other companies and we present them as satellite two and satellite three. So when you when you get into the initial application, there's two ways that you can switch around maps right now. You can swipe over the compass with your thumb, or you can click the map button the second time after you've clicked map, and then it'll bring up all of those maps that you can swipe through. So the point there was, I wanted an application that was usable with just one thumb. So on that compass, if you hold it down, you can toggle it to either side of the screen. But the point there was, is if you're carrying something out into the woods, or if you're dragging a deer with one hand, and you want to pull the application out of your pocket, you can access all of the tools with your thumb, you can switch all of the maps with your thumb, and you can do it on either side. But then you can also toggle all of the tool options and menus along the bottom of the screen, like building a journal, like uh, launching the tool menu a second way, um, and, and the Intel tab, and all of those things can be reached with the thumb. So really what I was focusing on there was usability. The second thing that comes with that usability is, if SAT1 isn't great for your area, you can you can go to the Lambda map and you can configure a map that's good for your area that allows you to swipe through them. So, so the basic maps that I want available for everyone is the SAT1 map, the Topo map, and then a hybrid map. So those first three are the swipes when you're swiping through. And then the fourth one, fourth one is this um, Lambda map. And what that is basically is a fully configurable map. So it can become one of your swiping ones. So if you're in the woods and you want to toggle back and forth, for instance, you you'll build this you will build this lambda layer. So you can say, I want crop data and trails for my area because you're hunting in the Midwest where there's a lot of crops or you have your own land. So I want that data on there, and I want that to be a quickly um, uh, swipe. I want to be able to sw quickly swipe to that data. But then, say you're in an area where you're scouting or you're walking around or you just want to see something else. Instead of pushing that gear and going through and reconfiguring the map again, you can just swipe to the other maps and you can see the topo, you can see the you can see the aerial and the topo hybrid, or you can see the straight aerial without having to reconfigure that lambda map. So it allows other mapping apps and other ones that are out there. You have one map and you have to reconfigure that map. And if you want to put something on there or take something off, or if you want to just go back to seeing the bare bones hybrid. It takes a lot of clicks, but with this Lambda map and this fully configurable map, when you're out there scouting, it's just to swipe the thumb to go back and look at your hybrid or to look at your straight aerial or to look at your fully configured Lambda. So that was kind of the thought there was when you're out in the woods, if you're looking at your, you know, if you've got one where there's property layer layers and there's trails and you're using the UAV imagery and it's in the area where there's historical imagery and you put it back to 2015 and you want to keep it like that, but now you just want to quickly see topo, you just got to swipe your thumb. 
Um, and then if you want to go back to that Lambda and reconfigure it, you can do it. So that was kind of the point of the Lambda map was if you've only got one hand or you're pulling something or you're on the tree stand and you don't want to make a bunch of movements that's going to scare deer in the area or you've got some does in front of you, you can kind of just take it out, take quickly, quickly take a look movement with one thumb, put it back in your, in your, in your pocket and you're done. So the goal there, again, just to kind of nail it home there, was to have one layer on that through those swipes or through those selectable, selectable maps that was fully configured to what you needed, but then three other ones that allowed you to see every other state of that area that you could possibly configure, that, but it's there easily and swiped to easily inside of the application. Yeah, and that that's... I, I until you really said something, I guess I haven't thought about it because it was so like easy and intuitive with the whole like everything is right within a thumb's distance. And I know I can say from experience when I'm in the woods and I'm looking at my phone, I'm always either holding a bow, hold, whatever it is. Um, yeah, so you nailed that. <laughs> That's and awesome. It, I mean, it's one of those things where it's pretty funny because what I'll get from users is, I'll get a message like, how do I change maps? And I'll explain it to them. They're like, well, this is dumb. Or not a lot of people say this is dumb or they'll be like, huh, okay. I guess I'm used to clicking something. Like we've built in a second way now. It used to be you could only swipe, but we've built in a second way now where if you press the mapping button for the people um, that don't follow the tool tips, because you, when you download the map for the app for the first time, you have to go through these tool tips that explain it. But a lot of right. times people skip over it. So people would be like, okay, yeah. Like, can I just click the map thing too? And I'm like, no, not yet, but we'll get there. But basically, nine times out of 10, those same people would get back to me and be like, I've been using the swipe on the compass now, and I love it, and I hate when I'm using other apps. <laughs> it doesn't matter what the app is. If it's another competitor app, or it's Google Maps, or it's um, Gaia, or whatever, they're like, man, I hate, like, it takes me five or six clicks to get to another map, whereas on Spartan Forge, just swipe my thumb once, and I'm there. And you kind of don't notice... I think it's good UI and UX design when you don't notice the simplicity of it. You just yeah. are operating in that space and it's quick and efficient, but it becomes really obvious to you whenever you go to other mapping applications um, that don't have those things in, in mind whenever they're designing it. You know, we are between two or three times less clicks to get to every piece of data. Like in a competitor app, if you want to see state data for a state that you're not in, if you're not paying for that, right, which most people mm -hmm. don't pay for one state, we give you all 50 states for about the same price that you're getting one state from the competitor apps. But if you want to go and look at one of those other ones, it's it's a it's a, it's a pan to the area, it's a click on the map, it's a download of that data, or it's a re, it's a paying for that data. Then it's layering that data on the current map set, and then it's collapsing that drawer and then panning in the area. With Spartan Forge, it's just Go to the Lambda map, turn the layer on, and then go back to the map. It's three clicks. So a lot of people in the UI, a lot of people aren't user interface and user experience designers. But it becomes really important um, when, when you kind of can reflect or stand outside of it and be like, oh, wow, I'm getting there with three clicks instead of seven. Um, that, again, is just quality. It's what the type of quality that I'm trying to build into the application. Well, yeah, especially when you're, I mean, when you're out hunting or scouting and you're, I mean, your mind is in a million different places. And the fact that a lot of the other apps that I, you know, when you want to look at something, you've got to take, you almost have to take your mind completely off of what's going on around you, which is not good when you're in the woods. 
and really focus on, you know, clicking and like you said, getting five, six, seven pages through till you finally get where you're going. Um, yeah, that that's one thing about it. I love you can just you can pull up everything you need, super simple, super quickly with one thumb. You don't have to set your bow down or if you are in the stand or in a saddle or whatever. Um, it's just really quick and it's it's very intuitive too. Like it wasn't the Intel side of it, I'm gonna ask questions about how to understand it better. But as far as the mapping app side of it, it's just it's not, in my opinion, it's awesome. It's it's just the quickest, simplest. You can kind of just like not mindlessly, but mindlessly pull what up, pull up what you need while still being present in the moment. So one question I did have, and this is more of a I, I don't understand how to best use it. You give the option to look back at historical maps. So I can come on here and I'm on here right now for everyone who's listening. I can come on here and I can look up uh, 2022 and then I can click and I can go back years. So, yeah. and that'll pull up map data from that particular year. So I can look back at 2017. What was your intent of doing that? And why did you put that in there? So there's a few reasons. The The primary one is, especially when you turn on the public land layer and you're looking at public land, you can look at the way that it's shifted over time. And what you can derive from that is the, the amount of time that trees have been cleared or different things have been planted or houses have been moved. And then what that tells you is it tells you the vegetative age structure of what's in that surrounding area. And the vegetative age structure is indicative of whether or not deer would be around there feeding. So generally, depending on where you are in the country, it's between one and five years after ground is cleared. Um, natural forage, which is, you know, the science is clear. That's the best type of forage for deer. People plant a lot of forage in a lot of areas, like they'll buy chicory or they'll buy oats or, or they'll buy corn. If it doesn't grow naturally in that area, you're going to have to put a lot of money into, into different types of, you know, like uh, fertilizers or ammonias, or you're going to have to sour the soil or sweeten the soil. You're going to have to change all kinds of things to get things to grow. Really, you don't need to do that. All you need to do is clear the ground. It's kind of a peripheral thing. But um essentially what you can do with that historical is you can go back and say, oh, okay, it looks like this ground here was cleared away from a construction company, you know, who's going to build some condominiums there, but it was moved away two years ago. Or this timber cut was made in this part of the woods by a logging company three years ago. So now I can expect to find forage on the ground there that deer can get to. But once those trees grow too long and you get past like five, six, seven, eight, nine years, now you're, you're getting into an area where a lot of the canopy is too high for deer. And if they're not if they're not mass producing trees like oaks or something like that, where it's falling on the ground, now you're not going to see the concentration of deer or the deer numbers in that area that you otherwise would if the cuts were younger. So that's kind of like the first thing. But then the second thing is um, a lot of the imagery now, and it's expanding, especially if you did the last update, we've, we've really upped the amount of this high resolution imagery. But if you look at it, um, a lot of it is near cities and near highways and near places, um, and, and, and we've expanded it out some. But the other thing that you can do with that is, with a lot of construction companies, uh, some of my best spots where I've hunted has been where a place is cleared, cleared away, trees are cleared away, and there's a construction company that's going to start hunting there next year. I'll a lot of times go up and just talk to those guys and be like, who's the foreman? And talk to the foreman and be like, hey, do you guys mind if I hunt off this property? 
And a lot of times those are the most yeses that I get is whenever I'm asking to like hunt off these areas because there's nothing going on there. They really don't care. They might care once they start building homes or the property might change hands, but but then you can also line that up with the publicly available data or areas that are available. And we also highlight any land that's, so we on our public layer right now, we don't just, we don't, we don't really tell you the difference between um, hunting land or just publicly available land. We are going to build that in later because sometimes you'll see it's like a park or something, Yeah. but, but it's important for you to know that those parks are there because a lot of times you can, again, in West Virginia here, some of my best hunting spots are in the woods of parks where I wouldn't talk to the people that manage it. And since it was bought with federal money or state tax money, a lot of times, if you're just like, you know, at the time, a couple of years ago, I was still in the military. I was like, Hey, I was a military guy. I just moved here. I'd really like to bow hunt, you know, up on this ridge where you guys don't clear it away because it's just a park area and no one really goes up there. And a lot of times they'll say yes to me, whereas those aren't highlighted in other apps. Now, what we will be doing this year is we'll be, we're keeping those blue and then we'll turn the public hunting areas a, a different shade of blue or a different color so you know which ones are huntable and which ones aren't but for now we highlight all of those because a lot of times you can get yeses on those lands and i didn't want to leave those lands off the table because again those are super productive but then understanding historically like oh this was just cleared two or three years ago it's going to be a lot of ground um, vegetation there and that's going to hold deer especially during the daylight hours where if it's, you know, three or four, five years old and it's coming off the ground, they'll bed right in that stuff. Um, and, it, you know, that's good for hunters to know. So it's kind of a long-winded answer, but it's important. And that's how I use the historical stuff um, in an area. The other, the last second thing, which I said, there are two major things I do with it. The second thing is uh, the most recent imagery sometimes will be taken in the springtime where there's, where there's, where there's um, vegetative cover. You can quickly go back to the winter imagery because it's done every six months. And now you can see the leaf off imagery and you can examine those areas without any leaves on the tree. When it's that high resolution, you can literally pick out the tree that you want to go in. Um, and, and, and subsequent updates, you'll actually be able to measure the trees. So it's getting super, super specific. Um, and, you'll, and you'll be able to literally pick, well, you can pick your tree out right now. But in a, in a month or two, you'll be able to pick your tree out and you'll be able to measure it and say, oh, this is a 35 foot poplar and I, I'll be able to get up into this no problem. Whereas in other apps or even on our lower quality imagery, you have no idea if it's a three inch diameter tree that you'll, you know, you'll never be able to get up right. or it's a 10 foot um, or not 10 foot, but two foot diameter tree. So right. two primary ways I would say most people would use that. There are other peripheral ways to do it, but those are kind of the main ones. The first thing that pops to my mind with that, now that you've kind of explained that is um, I got into urban hunting. Obviously uh, I've, I've learned a ton from Seek One watching them hunt. And um, I know you've, you've worked with Seek One a lot too. Um, so I got into urban hunting and I can see how where I get to hunt in the city, how that, that really benefits that, yes, especially absolutely. where I'm at there's a lot of development going on. There's constantly things being built, torn down, moved. Um, so that's awesome. Cause now, yeah, now I know that that sets me up even better going into this season um, on the urban side of things. Uh, now that I understand that better. So. Yep, absolutely. And I, so, I can tell you, the one guys use it in the same way, but I yeah. just. And they do pretty good. So <laughs> they do pretty well. 
they're okay. I don't want to say they're great, but no, I'm yeah, just kidding. Yeah, yeah. Those guys are awesome. But uh, so kind of transitioning into the real the real meat and potatoes of this app, um, getting into the Intel side. So if you guys have not opened the app yet, um, one thing I like too, which I don't know if it, not all the other apps offer all of this just basic information even, but like I found myself in the past before using Spartan Forge, I'd pull up Onyx um, or HuntWise and I would have to toggle back and forth between the weather, between um, different sources to find what the wind's really doing because I did find in some of the other apps, like it says, hey, your wind is is uh, north northwest and i'm sitting there and i'm like nah it's it hasn't been northwest this entire time so i'd always toggle around everywhere um in in the app it gives you like i'm looking right now it gives you your wind direction your speed um talks about precipitation sun up sun down first light last light um talks about moon phases um I mean, it's it, it's like a one-stop shop. So if you guys are out there and if you were like me where you're toggling between three or four apps just to kind of formulate a plan for the day, it's all right here just for your basic information. Um, but then to go further into that, you get into the forecast portion of it um, and it covers movement, pattern, and then it's got temperature and your pressure and then the rest of the forecast and all that. But Help me to understand a little bit better in the movement and the pattern section of it. Um, you have what will pop up under movement is either core area, transition area, or full range. So can you kind of talk about each one of those and kind of what they mean and how how using these predictions and understanding that terminology, you can put that into your plan for your hunt? Yeah, sure. So I'll I'll, start, I'll preface this by saying, there's a little I button right next to the prediction for the day. And if you click yep. that little I button, there's an explainer. So if, if, if what I'm saying isn't sinking in, you can reference that data and it'll actually give you a visual representation of what the neural network is predicting for. So on, on, on the neural network, there's, there's two buckets of three possible predictions. The first three buckets are the movement buckets. And they're, as you talked about, core area, transition area, and full range. So core area is basically when we're training these neural networks, we're telling the neural network to recognize, are the deer during daylight hours generally staying in their core areas? Are they venturing out into their transition areas or are they out into their full range areas? Where in other words, if you were to plot every GPS point that, that deer's ever popped, they, they, during the daylight hours, they could be anywhere inside of that glob of points. So what the neural network's doing is it's looking at I think it's 21 or 23 different weather reference points along with some other things that we throw in there. The neural network gets all of that information and it's actually observing what the deer are doing during the daylight hours and then during the rest of the 24 hour period. So it then it observes, okay? The, it, when you look at a deer's GPS waypoints, you can, you can very quickly understand if they're in bedding or if they've left bedding or if they're out in the middle of a field, like it's not difficult. So we use from biology, um, when biologists like Steve Ditchkoff from Auburn, who has a deer lab, I just lifted these terms from him. So the, the terms basically are your core area, which means the deer are in a, a bedding scenario where they are seeking bedding shelter and safety during daylight hours where they feel safe and where they'll be moving. And de- generally the movement that occurs within a core area is 
rising, pooping, walking, sitting, rising, pooping, peeing, walking, sitting, and then maybe nibbling on a little bit of branches in between, but that's what they're doing in their core area. This is their bedroom. This is where they feel safe, and this is where they move during the daylight hours. And the transition area would be, um, you could traditionally think of them as either staging areas or scraping areas or where the deer are leaving their bedroom now and they have they have left the security of that bedding, but they're not to like their destination food sources or to their redding areas or or out and exposed like they are at midnight whenever you see a deer out in the middle of a field. But they are still there's still a sense of security. So it's either in the woods or it's in a cornfield that's not cut or it's you know, somewhere where the deer still feel safe, but they're not in their bedding areas. Then the full range basically is just every plot of every point, including the 3 a.m. points, the 12 a.m. points, <coughs> middle of the field points. So the neural network is looking at all of those and it's observing the, the patterns in weather over multi-year periods. And it's saying, here's what I'm observing during daylight hours that deer are in their core area. Here's what the neural network's observing when they're in their transition area. And here's what the neural network observes when they're in their full range area. So it makes those three predictions. And like I said before, out of those three buckets, we're getting it right about two thirds of the time. So if we're telling you it's gonna be a core area day, you can 66% of the time, we're pretty correct. And that, it's actually better than that. It's when you average the three out, you get 66%. I believe that when we tell you they're gonna be in the core area or right something like 73% of the time. And then when we're telling you it's gonna be in transition area, I think it's like 66. And it also depends on the area in the country. Some areas we've got tons of data, some areas we have less data, but we basically have data for all of the country. Um, when you add up all of our timelines for all of the deer data that we have, it's something like 2000 years. The second one is the pattern. And yes, and the second one is the pattern. And essentially the pattern is how the deer leave their bedding areas and navigate their way to their destination feeding areas or their scrape lines. And it's basically how, and essentially it boils down, it's not wind, just wind, but wind is a heavy factor. So deer like to scent check areas before they go into them. They like to J-hook areas before they go into them. They like to know that what they're walking into is safe. Of course, if the wind is the, the, the normal wind, for instance, you could think of it this way. If you're glassing a field uh, during a primarily Western wind and the deer always enter the field from the East or the Southwest or something like that, because that's where the cover is and that's what allows them to get into the field without smelling anyone, that would be their normal pattern. So they're normally heading, like let's just say for sake of ease of argument, they're heading into the field from the Southeast. Well, now you're glassing that field and all of a sudden they're all coming in from the North. That would be their abnormal pattern. But then say now you've got like an East wind when there's never an East wind and now there's no deer in your field. That'd be their very abnormal pattern. So you could kind of think about it from a human perspective of, how do you normally drive to work? That would be your normal pattern. That'd be your normal pattern of travel. And then if you're deviating from that travel because of traffic, that would be a point of contact that we would feed a machine if we were trying to predict how you're gonna move throughout the day. So we could be like, you know, Vince always takes um, I-90, or I'm sorry, let's try to get right the right highway here for you. He always takes, <laughs> I, he always takes I-80 or I-94. There you go. <laughs> whenever he is going to work. Um, but you know, there's, it's a heavy traffic day and the neural network has traffic. So now he, we know that he takes an adjacent highway that is like, you know, highway 55 or something like that. And the machine can predict that because it knows traffic patterns. It's the same thing with these neural networks because it understands wind and it under, well, it doesn't understand it. It can pattern wind 
like deer pattern wind, then it can make predictions on what the pattern is going to be. So if you know deer always enter from a field or work a scrape line um, the majority of the time, and then you look up the majority time the wind is, the, the, the machine can draw that inference and it can make a prediction for you based on the forecast if the deer are going to be moving a lot or a little inside of their whole core area during daylight hours or outside of the core, light, core area during daylight hours, and then what pattern they're going to be using when they traverse that terrain. I think it's important to mention too, um, you've already mentioned it, but just to reiterate, this is from collared deer data. So it's not, again, it's not Bill has hunted for X amount of years, and this is kind of what he's seen has happened. So he tells his machine to see, like you're getting actual GPS collared deer, real deer for yeah. this data. Yeah, and the pur for the purposes of machine learning, we call it truth data. There's no, okay. there's no bias here. There's no, there's, it's just the data that the deer, the, this is a deer's neural network. The deer are generating the data that is being fed into the machine. And is this something you get, and I'm not trying to like pry into your, your secret formula, but is this like, do you work with, you mentioned working with uh, a guy at Auburn. Is this something you pull from universities across the country or? Universities, hunt clubs, and military installations are our okay. primary. All three of those centers are looking to understand the deer populations in their respective areas, whether it's for, you know, sales of tags and, and, and state data or it's understanding traffic patterns and minimizing deer collision, or it's a military base that has to report on their impact on the environment when they're conducting rifle ranges or brass is being left in the soil, or they've done some kind of testing. They have to collar all of the uh, deer or all of the animals on that land to the amount that they can so that they can do an environmental impact study and let people know. So I get a lot of data from military bases. I get a lot of data from state agencies and probably the least amount of data, although I do have some and it's, there's a bunch of it, is when a hunts club volunteers to have a, an academic uh, come on their, their land and collar deer because they wanna understand how the deer move the property. And then generally the, the academics will allow them to keep that data. Um, so th those are the kind of like the three courses of action that I use to get to the deer data. I, I think it's in incredibly interesting and awesome that you're offering something with it's it's real life data. It's actually what these deer are doing, and sure, it may it's not going to be 100% accurate. You know, you you don't know, you know, if there's a buck in Iowa named Joe, you don't know what he is going to do that day. But to be able to say generally, deer deer in general do this at this time with these variables. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know how you can argue that. I think that's a, it's a very solid system you've got together. So that's yeah, why I'm it, like fanboying the app. Cause I think it's well, so valuable for a, for a new hunter. Um, this information is stuff that I've only hunted for, you know, this fall is going to be my third season. So I don't have experience. I don't have all this well, I've hunted for 20 years, and generally what I've seen over the last 20 years is that they do this. I don't have that. So to be able to have kind of a, at least a starting point, it, even if it's just that, to have a starting point to say this is kind of what the deer should be doing, that's huge for a new hunter. So, yeah, and, and it's, I, you know, I read the bow, I pay attention to bow hunting forums, and one of the things that I, I'm trying to stick in there now is this app's not going to tell you when you should be hunting. 
It's not gonna say don't go hunting today. It doesn't do that. But the application is saying they're generally gonna be in a core area. Now, if you only have access to deer in their core area, in other words, if you have access to some public land, which you know everyone has access to, but you don't have access to the crops that you know they all go to at night, right? So a lot of yeah. people might be thinking, I only want to hunt on full range days because that's when the deer are going to be moving the most or when they're going to be outside of their bedrooms. Well, if you don't have access to where anything but the bedrooms, then it's good to know that it's a core air, a range, it's going to be a core area day because the deer are going to be where you have access to them. Um, Lee Ellis tells a great story from the Seek One crew that you referenced earlier where he only had access to a deer. He had an access to, he had access to a deer on, in its core area but he could glass where the rest of its range. So mm -hmm. he'd know when it was in the rest of its range and when he didn't have access to it. So he was waiting for core area days where that deer might be getting up out of its bed at the last bit of sunrise because that was the only, or sunset, because that was his only chance to get on that deer. He didn't want to get in there at 2 p.m. when the deer might be up and about because he'll never get into the tree. That deer is going to be up and moving around on a full range day. That might not even be in that set of woods. So the app's not there to tell you when you should hunt or not hunt. The app's there to tell you when you can predict if they're going to be remaining in their core area or in those other places that I talked about before. What might be a question that comes to someone's mind is like, well, you're making these predictions and that's great. And you have data and that's great. But do you actually have eyes on the ground that can confirm to say, hey, I look at your app today and it said this and sure enough, that's what happened or vice versa. Um, I kind of, I was, when I was doing kind of some homework on how to, how to go about this podcast, I heard you allude to like, guys, remember he has a pro staff and these guys are, and, and you can explain it better than me, but like, to my understanding, you've got guys out there using the information and seeing that it's actually, it, it is correct, at least most of the time. Yeah, we have pro staff that are constantly hunting, constantly in the field. Again, not to keep referencing that. Well, I can reference other hunters on the pro staff. A guy like Johnny Stewart, who's another prolific a pro staffer for us, has never done scouting, has never done hunting. He's always doing it. He's always observing them. And he's always pulling cameras. And he can always he's always critiquing the data and letting me know that, yeah, he finds it to be accurate about two-thirds of the time. Secondly, we have academics that monitor the data and academics that we've built models for. And, and, and there's, about, there's about to be a podcast with myself and Steve Ditchkoff um, from Auburn and the Seek One guys, and he has neural networks that we've built that he uses both for his wild um, collared deer. Well, he doesn't have any right now. He got rid of his last wild collared deer last year, but he uses it for the pen deer, and he finds it to be extremely accurate. But then the third point of contact is I have real-time GPS deer data in a few states, so I can actually look at my prediction for the week, and then I can watch it unfold in real time when I'm watching the collared deer, and I can, again, I, I come down between 60 and 70% accuracy. When I look at the, when I, when I add up all of the movement of all of the deer and I take the mean value out of all of that movement, and then I look at the app and the app says, well, it was core area today. And then at midnight, I take the, the data, I aggregate it, I get the average of it. And sure enough, the majority of deer remained in their core area for the, for the, for the day. Um, that is what, how we know that we're not, there's a couple of ways in machine learning that we can test and make sure that this isn't static, um, but that's one of them. And then there are other useful ones that we do as well that I can get into if you want to. But yeah, so there are many points of contact 
on how we can test the accuracy of this. Um, and, and, and again, this isn't to give somebody a secret pill. This is to recognize that people have full-time jobs and families that they want to spend time with. And it, they can use deer cameras, they can use scouting, they can use all of these things. And again, it's just that isolation of variables in your equation to try to make that informed decision to say, hey, hon, do you mind watching the kids tonight? I'm going to go out and try to put a tag on a deer. Um, and you're getting that best day to do that. So, you know, for the people who are like, I don't need an app to tell me when to hunt. Well, I think I've already covered it. This app doesn't tell you when to hunt. This app tells you where you can expect deer to be in their core transition or full range area. But then secondly, if you don't want to use that aspect of the application, then use it for the great mapping. Use it for the historical. Save time. Save your energy. Save your money. Save your gas money. And, 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 and do as much digital scouting as you can before you get on the ground. Yeah. It seems like there's, there's like the, the hunters out there and there are a lot of hunters who seem like I'm in the woods every single day. If you're not out there, you don't deserve a deer, blah, 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 blah. The fact of the matter is it's, it's what you said. There's a lot of people out there, myself included, who I've got full-time job. I've got two really young kids. I've got a wife. I want to be present. I want to be a good husband. And if you, if you use this to kind of figure out, I, I guess the, the, the cool thing about it is it does a lot of that, like I said, flipping through 30 different things to find information. It does everything in one spot so I can get on here really quickly and I can kind of look like, hey, today looks like it might be a good shot. Um, and I don't have to, I don't have to surf over 16 different apps to try to find the information I'm looking for. And I, I think that's important. I think a lot of hunters out there are in the same situation. There's a lot of guys who don't just to those guys who do it for a living or those guys who do get to hunt all the time because of their life circumstance. That's great. I'm happy for you. I can't do that. So yeah. the fact that this app boils everything into the same pot and I can come here and just figure, figure it all out. That's super important to me. Um, so one one other, the next part over, so you have forecasts and then one that I don't quite understand how to use um, on the historical side, it looks like it's giving like historical information for, is it wind, wind speed yeah. and your, your temperature, your precipitation um, and yeah, wind. What would be the benefit? So if I know today, I can look at what the, the forecast is for today, but what is the benefit for me to look two weeks back, four weeks back, um, et cetera? What's the benefit of that part of the app? So there's a few, and I'll go to the first one. So the first thing is, is that representation is called a polar plot. What the polar plot is doing is it's trying to show you a few things of information that kind of help you conceptualize what are the normative environmental factors in an area. So when we look at this polar plot and the one I'm looking at, um, it, it has spikes that are colored. The largest mm -hmm. spike constitutes the largest percentage of wind in an area. So I'm looking at mine and Southwest has a really large spike. And then at the bottom of the polar plot, it says prevailing wind is a Southwest at 26%. So over the last two weeks, the majority of the wind has been Southwest at 26%. So there's a couple of things you can do with that. When you pull a deer camera from the last couple of weeks and you see deer using a scrape or a certain area, and then you can go back and be like, okay, they've been hitting it on these days where it was a Southwest wind. But on the days where it was like, you know, a different wind, or historically, maybe you're looking at it over the whole year. So then you can go click the calendar and you can say, look, I want to see um, in November what the pre predominant wind is. And so now I click that and mine has changed to a west wind. 
So now when I'm doing that digital scouting and I'm looking at the map and I'm, and I'm plotting points with the application and I'm saying, okay, the deer were hitting this scrape when the primary wind was a Western wind and it looks like it was about 48% of the time. So now I know that the deer hit this scrape in a specific area when there's a, this specific type of wind or generally when it's a Western wind. But then separately, when I'm scouting areas that I've never been into, I can identify, especially in topography, well, not even in areas without a lot of topography, it fits for any area. When I understand the general wind dynamics in an area, I, if I've never even been there, I can look at a digital map and I can say, okay, here are the leeward features. Here are the areas where the wind is blowing over. If you have like a mountain, right? And then you have a leeward area is everything on that side of that mountain where the wind is going over. So for the people who can see me, it's going to make sense. For the people who can't see me, I'm sorry, you can just Google leeward. But understanding those leeward areas um, is important for scouting so that when you are on the side of a hill where there's a lot of scrapes or you're in the top third or the bottom third of a hill or something like that, now you're understanding what the winds are from that time of year. Generally, when you're going to see a lot of scraping is leading up to the rut and during the rut. So if you've discovered an area where there's a ton of scraping and you are some, some summarizing or surmising that it's occurring, you know, between, say your rut, primary rut is November 4th. So now I know about two weeks before that and about a week after that, this scraping is getting laid down on this hill, even though you're there in March, okay? And then you look at the primary wind and you're like, okay, this makes sense. This is a, this is a west, this is a east-facing hill and the primary wind is west. And now I'm looking at the scraping area. I'm seeing all of these scrapes. So now you've not even been on the ground. You've not even, you don't even know. You just, you, you, you're, you're looking at it from a map and you can say, okay, now, now I've marked this area and I know when that wind is present during prime rut, I need to enter maybe from the bottom, from the east, and I need to get up near that scraping. And now I know deer will be using that area during the primary rut. Um, and you can do this with any type of activity, whether it's bedding, uh, how deer navigate, especially bucks, they like to J-hook into areas and take advantage of the wind. When you understand when you're in an area during a certain time of, time of year, um, you, knowing that historical wind is so valuable when it comes to projecting and saying, okay, um, if I'm, if I've scouted an area and I know this is where the, a ton of scrapes are, the majority of the time, those, that heavy scraping is happening during a, a pre prevalent wind situation, because whenever you have an area, say that's mostly a West or a Northwest wind. If it's a southern wind, the deer are going to be using a different part of the of the woods that they gen generally don't use because they want to set the wind in their favor. So it's just helping understand the the normal conditions makes you a much more dangerous hunter because then you can watch those conditions take place, then make your move based on them. I feel like I feel like I'm if I don't kill a deer this year after this, <laughs> man. It's kind of it's kind of funny you said you worked within like special operations like and I in no way mean to to insult anyone who's actually in the special operations so don't take it this way but this this sounds generic and guys I'm not saying this cuz he's paying me to I'm just a dork that likes to say stupid stuff but like this thing almost makes you like a special operations deer hunter uh, I mean it gives I you mean, you're definitely trying to get as many variables as you can and that's the same thing that a soldier or a commander who's making decisions based, you know, he's executing the nation's wealth 
and he's using the blood of its of the of its youth to go after bad guys. So you better have every variable in the equation nailed out before you decide to commit blood and treasure towards a particular operation. And in this case, for it, it's your time and your money that you're committing before you go out and sit on the side of a hill for seven or eight hours. Yeah. Um, and then the second part here that I didn't talk about is, so you have these spikes that are telling you the wind, but then you can also understand the backup winds. But then you can also say, all right, when I'm, the second thing you can do is <clears throat> when you look and you like on this polar plot that I have right here, almost all of the winds are south to southwest for November. Okay. Mm -hmm. I can disregard north. If I want to make sure my scouting is as smart as possible. And if I'm going, if I'm going to an area to go do scouting off season, doesn't matter what the wind is right now. I need to scout the southwest setups because I know that's the majority of the winds that are going to be present when I'm actually going to go back there in November. So now you're that's not wasting your time um, scouting areas where the prevalent wind isn't going to suit deer movement or your ingress or egress to a particular stand. Then the second part of that polar plot is you have the spikes are colored and that color breaks down. There's a percentage right on east, you can see a percentage that breaks down from the largest percentages to the smallest. So if you take that, you have colors that indicate the amount that the velocity or the wind speed, and then the, the amount that that, that um, color occupies on the polar plot tells you the percentage of the time. So on this southwest wind that I'm looking at, I can see it's 10 to 15 miles an hour, about 1% of the time. And I see that it's six to 10%, um, six to 10 miles per hour, about 18% of the time. And then it's four to six miles an hour, about 4% of the time. And then it's two to three miles per hour, about 1% of the time. So now I know based on that color, that polar plot, what the velocity of the wind is, what the, what the first, what, in a pecking order, the top four winds are, and then what their general wind speeds are. So now I've got a very good understanding of this area just by looking at this one image um, yeah. on this polar plot. I have to admit, that's one thing that I, you know, you toggle over to and I look at it and I'm like, okay, we'll just move on over to Intel. <laughs> like, I, I couldn't really, I, I didn't know how to use it and I didn't really know how, I mean, now that you explained it, yeah, it's, it, it makes a ton of sense. And that's probably where my lacking in experience as a hunter, I didn't know how to make sense of this, this stuff, but man, yeah, that, I mean, that, that alone is a game changer, like you said, in terms of like, okay, like we talked about, I'm a, I'm a father, husband, I've got other commitments. So, you know, when I want to go out and scout, that really helps you hone in where you're going to go scout. Yeah. Um, I mean, you hear of guys saying, hey, if you're going to go scout this chunk of public land, take a square here, a square there, a square there. Well, if I look at this and it's telling me, you know, like you were saying, we predominantly have Southwest winds or whatever it might be, just like what you mentioned, if it's predominantly that, then why should I, why do I waste time in a bunch of different areas that if that is true and, and it is, it's historical data, why waste time on this part of the property and this part of the property when I can go focus in on where it's, you know, where it's most valuable. So that's, yeah, that's an extra little part that, you know, that I just learned that I'm like, super pumped to use now. Yep, absolutely. It's one of the things I, I mean, I use the most um, when I do my scouting, even back in the day um, before this app existed, was understanding, especially areas where I couldn't go and get on the ground or I didn't live, or if I was hunting out of state, 
um, getting an understanding of all of those things before I go in there so I can optimize my scouting. Also lends context to your past points. And we're going to actually, on the web app, there'll be a feature where you can look up prior wind and prior um, days of weather. And you can already do it with the journal. So right now you can go into the journal. You can look at your deer camera photos from last year. And you can go to the journal and you can type in the day and it'll bring up the weather for you. But we're also going to make it a lot easier inside of the web app. So again, you can contextualize your photos of deer that you have on a camera and understand, oh, this buck's hitting this scrape when these conditions are present, but he's not hitting it when these other conditions are present, X, Y, and Z. And you just, that, that was one part that I, de I definitely don't want to skip over is the journal aspect of it. It's not, for you guys that may not have looked in here, it's not just like a blank thing where you're just like, let's just write about what we saw today. Like you have the option, you've got your GPS location, you've got, um, you can place a journal pin on the map. It gives you the weather for that day, the wind, the dew point, pressure, all of that good stuff. Um, you can put in what weapon you were using that day. And then there's a part where you can add um, pictures. What's the add deer part? Um, you can categorize and add individual deer. So if you're seeing like a specific doe or a specific gotcha. buck, you can, you can click the add deer, you can name that deer, you can tag it, and then you can you know, report on it year by year. So if you're seeing a two-year-old a lot that you know you don't want to harvest, but you know where he lives, you now because of your scouting or deer cameras, you have a good idea of his travel routes. Um, you know, after they're turned 18 months, they're kind of in the area that they're going to be in until they get older. The area sometimes shrinks, sometimes it gets larger, but they are going to be in those types of areas. So if you're like, hey, you know, this is a three and a half year old deer, really good deer, but I don't want to, I don't want to harvest them yet. You can put that journal entry in there. You can elect whether or not to put it on the map. And then soon you'll be able to set a reminder to remind you like next year, hey, remind me of this three and a half year old deer. He's gonna be four and a half years old next year. That's awesome. I might wanna go back and, and harvest him then or wait till he's five and a half years old, whatever, what may have you. Um, you can just um, uh, journal those things. I'm a prolific journaler along with a lot of our, pro that's kind of the common thing among every good hunter I've ever met is they're constantly journaling every hunt, even when they're not seeing anything in areas, they write a journal entry and that's why we elect, you can put them on the, on the map or not. And we're going to get better with how we organize these things. But, you know, journaling really helps people almost in every facet of life. But hunting especially, um, it contextualizes things. But it also lends context to, you know, how often you actually are seeing deer. So you're not getting upset or you're not down on yourself. Because if you are hunting really mature deer, you're not going to be seeing a lot of deer. Um, right. When you're hunting the 150s, the 160s, the 170s, um, unless you are in like an urban setting where they're kind of forced to be in the same areas because that's where the food is, if you're out in like the mountains in the middle of nowhere, that deer is going to be off from all of the other deer unless it's prime rut. And if you're trying to understand that deer in the early season or get on them before a rifle opener or something like that, um, journaling is going to be invaluable um, when it comes to that type of endeavor. There's been many times that I've found you know, I've been asking myself, God, what was, what were the conditions on that day when I was out? Because there are definitely days where, um, last year specifically, there was definitely days where I thought, and again, this is where I loved Spartan Forge is I could come in there and I could find everything in one place instead of jumping around, but I could look at the app, I could see what it was telling me. And then I would go out there and I would see a ton of deer. And then there were days where the app says, Basically, you know, it makes it look like in the area I was hunting, you may not see a ton. And that was true as well. But then trying to figure out, okay, so then why weren't there deer that day? 
that's where this journal comes in extremely handy is you can just pop right back there and say, okay, on 8.3, this is what all these conditions were. And then the longer you use that journal, you're making your own data set that you can start looking at patterns on your own. So I'm glad we touched on that because um, I think that's a that's an extremely useful part of the app too. Um, sure. One of my favorite parts of it. Yeah. So the last part I want to touch on, and we don't have to spend a ton of time on it. When you come, so when you're on the main map, you click the center, it's called Intel. You're going to come in here and you're going to see some toggles for forecast historical, like we've just talked about both of those. And then you can go over to Intel. This is another thing that, I've, I've, at the least, I've found it to be extremely interesting. Um, it's just good data to know. So guys, when you come in here, it's going to tell you for the state you're in, it's going to tell you um, public land percentages, how many acres. Um, it's going to show you, tell you largest tracks, notable tracks of public land. And then it gives you a ton of data on like how many hunters are there, how many average days per hunter. Um you know, just harvest numbers, things like that. Um, success, success numbers, the Boone and Crockett or Pope and Young um, records for the state. I think that, I, I just think that's cool that all that's in here as well. You can know these things as well. Um, and then you can pop over to browse. And this is one part that I found extremely valuable as a new guy, because when you hear people talk about browse, so when you guys click that, you're not browsing anything. You're not browsing the internet. This is showing you kind of some of the stuff that the deer are going to be eating. Um, so when you hear when you hear people talk about browse, um, maybe you do you want to go ahead and just kind of explain browse and that whole section and how how valuable that is. Yeah. So there's browse, which is basically just what the food are eating in the air or what the deer are eating for food in the area. And then there's different times of the year that deer focus on different types of browse. Generally, this isn't always correct. Because you could have an area where there's a coniferous forest where certain types of browse doesn't exist, and you can have a deciduous forest somewhere else where browses are amply. So what we do is we give you pictures, and we're going to improve on these pictures. They're going to get better this year when we update this. We'll be updating this shortly. Um, so that when you're out there on the ground, you can be like, okay, this is actually what beach looks like, or this is what, uh, this is, this is what an eastern pine seedling looks like, which lots of deer feed on. A lot of people don't know that. Or here's what fern look like, and here, here's the time of year you should be focusing on. Like, say you're say you're doing a late season hunt in, in Pennsylvania, you want to be scouting for that fern and for that. Um, uh, 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 well, mostly I scout mostly for fern, um, but there's a couple of other ones that you can go after. I believe aster or pokeweed is another one. But like late season types of foods that you can focus on and the pictures are in there. So you're not just walking through an area that deer might be focusing on in late season. Um, so that browse, that, that is the generally the diet and then the time of year that they focus on those types of things. Of course, we all know deer focus on acorns wherever, wherever there are acorns. But then what is the difference between a white and a red acorn? Or why yeah. are they focusing on white acorns at this time of the year and red acorns on this type of the year? Or, or you know, talking about all of those types of things and breaking into that, again, just for the new hunters or for people that didn't have someone showing them these things, it's another common data repository that they can rely on that's going to be there while they're out there doing their scouting, and then they can drop those pins on the map. So we actually have pins for all of these things. So when you're going under scouting, you can find under trees or hard mass or soft mass, and you can actually go and drop those pins and be like, oh, I, 
I remember now I scouted and took a picture and dropped a pin of this fern that covers the side of this mountain in Pennsylvania. I might throw a camera on that and focus on that in the late season. Um, just for those types of things, again, it's just centrally, um, uh, it's, it's making a repository of that data so you can reference it and you don't have to look all over the internet and try to centralize these things yourself. It's there for you because those are important factors as we started this podcast, important variables that um, hunters can look to whenever they're doing their preseason, intraseason, or postseason scouting. That's one part of it that I really appreciated from from a newer hunter's uh, point of view, because you hear people talk about, oh, they're going to be feeding on browse, they're going to this and that, and you know you're sitting there like, okay, so what the hell is that? And this shows you. So you guys, when you get into this app, like it gives you pictures, it tells you, it talks about it. Um, which is going to help you understand because I'm not speaking from a, a point of years and years and years of experience, but the, the little experience I have, there's a few things that are super important with deer. You're going to need to know the wind because of your scent. Um, and you're going to need to know what they're feeding on when you're scouting, when you're doing, when you're, when you're, you know, if you're a public land hunter where you don't have a, a set tree stand that you go to every time, if you're trying to pick a tree each time you go out due to the scouting um, and fresh sign that you're looking at in the moment, like you've got to know what these, what these deer are eating in your area. And it's right there. You don't have to go search the internet. You don't have to, like I said earlier on, you don't have to go listen to Dan in Florida because what, what Dan in Florida's deer are eating is going to be much different than what you're, what they're eating in your area. And that's all right there for you. You get a picture of it, an explanation, so that you can kind of hone in and 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 maximize your time scouting and in the woods, um, and and yeah, it's just another another piece of the puzzle that you're going to need as a new hunter. It's all right there. Yeah, and cover and sex. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What are they eating? When are they eating it? How are they seeking security and shelter? And then how are they getting after the girls when they're ready to stand and mate? Yeah, yeah, and and. Things. And to speak to the, the, the rut, the mating portion of it too, you've got the, the common rut dates in there too, for the area. And I yeah, can tell you, people who aren't, aren't new hunter or people who are new hunters or people who aren't new hunters. In fact, I know a lot of people who've been hunting for many years and didn't understand the prop, the, the difference here. There's the peak rut date is actually going to be the one of your worst days to hunt for the year. So if the peak rut date on your, say your app, it says for your area, it's November 10th. Um, in fact, I think in a lot in your area in Iowa, it'd be November 10th or November 14th. Can't remember. Doesn't matter. I think it's probably it, yeah. It's November 10th. Let's just say that's going to be one of your worst days. But you need what you need to be doing is focusing on the two weeks before that and the week after that day, and then looking at the prediction or using your own heuristic, whatever, however you've done it, to to say okay, two weeks before that date is when the seeking and chasing is. That's when the bucks are moving because they're looking for the first receptive does. And the first and the majority of those does will be coming into estrus um, between 10 and 14 days before that date. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. that people should be, and then for a week after that. So it'll, it'll go like from a buck perspective, if you, I have a, a date, whatever that date is, let's just say this is 10 November. And this is now, this is buck movement. Two weeks out from that 10 November, you'll see buck movement starting to go like this. And then it'll go like this. It'll kind of come down. And then from here, buck movement will start to go up again as I seek the next 
Because what will happen is the majority of does will come into estrus and the majority of bucks that have won mating rights with those does will be locked down trying to mate those does in cover. You'll have a very hard time finding those does. But then after they've mated those does, now they got to go find the does again. So, and when there's less does to mate is when you're going to find the most daytime seeking and chasing. So that's why you want to have that's why doe to buck ratio is so important for people who don't, haven't hunted for a long time. Doe to buck ratio tells you how many bucks there are for how many does there are. If you have a buck to doe ratio of like one to 10, so in other words, there's one buck for 10 does, you're not gonna see a lot of daytime chasing because the bucks have an ample amount of does that it can just breed at night because they don't have to worry about other bucks breeding the does. Mm -hmm. Plenty of does out there. So you're not going to see a lot of daytime movement, traditional rut behavior, as you would call it. But when you get those two to one or one to one or three to one doe to buck ratios, now those bucks need to go and compete because those does are going to be coming into estrus. And they need to know when they're coming into estrus. So what I see in the GPS data is when you have balanced sex ratios, you see a lot more movement during those two weeks leading up to the peak of rut because they have to compete. So, you know, kill your does, harvest your does, get as many does on the ground as you can. But throughout the season, with the exception of the rut, uh, you know, and again, this is another one of those things. I validated this with Steve Ditchkoff kind of talking to him. Of course, if you can do, if you're going to do doe management, do it early in the season. But it really doesn't matter one way or the other, whether you're doing it late or early season. And people, I see people arguing about it because they're like, well, you're killing next year's buck or whatever. It's like, it doesn't matter if you kill the duck, the doe before she was inseminated or not. You're still killing a potential. There's still the potentiality for a deer to be born. And you're still right. getting potentiality so it doesn't matter if you do it before she was made it or after but the but from a quality of rut perspective you want to do it before the bucks are um uh, before the does are in estrus because if there are less does then there's got to be more competition among bucks to make does so if you have extra tags or whatever like get your does on the ground as early and as often as you can that's that's a that's a ton of great information and Guys, like we said, all this, all of this stuff that he just referenced, that's all in this app. And honest, I'm not like I said, he's not paying me to do this. I'm, I'm just, I really enjoy the app, and I want everybody to be able to understand how to use it properly. But this app is is just full of information that you're you just will not find in other apps. And it's it's not like I've said before. I'll say it one more time. It's not Bill's opinion on deer. This is real life data. And I mean, it's just endless. There is so much in there. Um, and I'm speaking mostly to newer guys. Like I said, you don't have experience to fall back on. I don't have experience to fall back on. So to have all of this data that's, that's real data at my fingertips, use it. I mean, you don't have any other option. You don't have experience. So if if I want to be proud about it and I don't want to listen to this thing and I want to go figure it out on my own, understand you're probably going to go five to 10 years with some pretty terrible deer hunting. Um, I know that when I, my first year, I saw deer the first day, I didn't see them the rest of the year because I wasn't looking in the right places. I didn't know what to look for. I didn't know what they were feeding on. Um, and then going into the second year, like he said, last year, in November, this thing popped out and it had this information and I was able to start using it. And guess what? I started seeing more deer. And that's just that's just fact of what happened. Um, so I wanted to put this app in front of all you guys, especially, especially new guys, but everybody. But new guys, this thing is 
it's kind of like in a weird way, it's kind of like your mentor, right? Right on your phone. Um, it's telling you a ton of stuff that you, you're just going to take a long time to learn on your own. So I want you guys to take advantage of it. If you guys enjoy what you've heard and you should, there's a ton of stuff. You want to give this a try. Um, Bill's been gracious enough to offer for, for this podcast. If you use code capital AFCO, that's capital AFCO, that's going to get you 20% off your subscription. Make sure you go online and do it on a computer because like every other app, it doesn't work through the app store. So you are going to have to get on your laptop, go to um, www.spartanforge.ai, um, go on there. It's really quick to sign up. Um, use that code, capital AFCO, that gets you 20% off. Um, I can't imagine any of you guys being disappointed with it. And again, I'm not getting paid to tell you this. I just, as a new hunter, I found this invaluable. So I wanted to put it in front of you guys. And I'm super thankful, Bill, that you would come on here and explain all this stuff for us. Um, Cause I think we, I, I think we're gonna see a lot of guys have a better season this year. And um, I just couldn't be more thrilled to have you on here. And um, yeah, if you guys found value in this show, if you like what you heard, Please go over, subscribe to the show, follow the show, give us a good rating on Apple, um, give us a good rating on Spotify, wherever you guys listen to podcasts, we're available. Um, and make sure you head over to at Antler Feather Co. on YouTube and Instagram. Give us some follows and likes over there. Um, make sure while you're on Instagram or on YouTube, wherever you're going, check out Spartan Forge. You can find them at Spartan Forge everywhere. Um, as always, I appreciate every single one of you guys that listen. Um, this is just, it's been such a great time and talking to you, Bill, I've enjoyed every minute of it. And I know I'm, I'm even more pumped to go into deer season here. We're under two months out and uh, we'll catch you guys on the next one. This is the Antler and Feather Co. podcast. You are listening to the Antler and Feather Co. podcast. 